Yeah, I really like that, that last song. Just that, 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 that cry like from our soul, like, God, you're so good. Like, God, how great you are. Um, and, and I find that that kind of thing pops up in, in all kinds of different areas of, of life and all kinds of different experiences. Um, so does anybody have something like, like that pops into your mind when, when you see it, when you experience it, that you're like, oh, God is good. Spring, yeah, things starting to pop up out of the ground, absolutely. Sunrise, good. When you sing, yeah, it comes out. I, uh, I had an experience uh, once on a, a missions trip, and we had stopped for a coffee and a pastry, and this pastry was like so well made that you took that first bite and just like, oh, God, you're good. Like, I'm glad I can taste this, you know? Uh, anything else? Like, what, what pops up where you're just like, God is real and he is good? When you see a miracle, right? Or experience a miracle. Like, there's all these things around us. I, the warmth on our face, the same warmth that somebody had mentioned is causing about spring. Like, we see the, the grass, even though it's covered in snow, is actually, like, greener right now. Like, like poking up. Like, there's little hope. Um, and, and so we can hold on to those things as we look all, all around us. Uh, and today, we're going to be getting into a passage, and, and we're going to be talking about uh, these kinds of things that point to God and how some people respond to them. Uh, and so it'll be in John chapter 12. Uh, we're continuing in our series, The Word, in the book of John. Uh, in chapter 12, we've been looking at a number of things, including Jesus being anointed by Mary, the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus prophesying his death, uh, and that would be that seed that falls to the ground and dies so that there can be much fruit. Uh, and here we'll be in uh, 12, beginning in verse 24, uh, kind of coming out of that same thought uh, and then how people respond to that. So uh, here in verse 24, uh, Jesus, again, we're reading a little bit from last week. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now in verse 27 is where we get into new uh, thought this morning. He says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Uh, it's kind of the same sentiment that he's going to have in the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit later, uh, where he's saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He's, he's essentially saying the same thing here, saying my soul is troubled, knowing what's, what's coming up within the next three to four days with him at this point, uh, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be crucified, and that he's going to die. So what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Uh, and so again, he's this declaration of, here's something I don't necessarily want to go through. Being arrested, being beaten, whipped, put onto a cross. Uh, a very, very unpleasant situation, but yet he's like, this is what must take place. This is the, the seed that must die so that salvation can be brought to uh, humankind within the world. So again, his ultimate thing is, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven comes, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Like, like just imagine being there in that moment. 
Like, like there's been this confrontation going back and forth between Jesus uh, and the Pharisees. Uh, this man was just healed not too long ago. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Uh, you've got a crowd of people uh, that are kind of within this area because of Lazarus and Jesus and the rumors of these miracles. Uh, and then this confrontation is happening and Jesus is saying, like, I'm going to die so that people are saved. This is for my Father's glory. And you're listening to this and, and maybe getting some glances over at the religious leaders and, and like, okay, how are they going to respond to this? What questions are they going to have? And all of a sudden, this voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, how do you respond in that moment? There's this idea of Jesus saying, like, like I'm doing my Father's will. And this voice from heaven's like, yep, essentially, that's my son. I think in that moment, a lot of us would be like, that's it, he's the Messiah. There's no question about this. Like, why are these people even trying to persecute Jesus? But yet in the very next phrase, in verse 29, it says, the crowd standing there heard it, and some said it was thunder. And then others said, an angel has spoken to him. I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. Oh, that's, that's just thunder. I don't see a cloud, but it's thunder. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, what are they doing in that moment where some people hear that it's, it's thunder and others are saying, no, that was an angel. That was God. This is confirmation of Jesus being the Messiah. Some believe and some still reject. And it's hard for us to believe from our perspective. Like, like, we're here within this room because we believe that God exists, that Jesus died for our sins, that we're forgiven, uh, and we're here to worship and follow him as our Lord and Savior. And so we look back and we're like, why are people saying that it's thunder? How can they deny this? How can they reject this? And this light of this evidence. And then if we just look back through the book of John, we see that it's happened again and again and again. And again, every single miracle that Jesus does points to the existence of God, points to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. You just go back a few chapters, I believe in, in around chapter 9, chapter 10, you've got the man who is born blind from birth. And he's sitting there and Jesus heals him by, by spitting and making some mud on the ground and then having the man go wash, Right? And, and he goes and he does that and he comes back seeing and, and people are like astounded because this has never happened before. You, you look throughout all of, of Scripture through the, the miracles that God did through the prophets and, and nothing is recorded. The blind man even brings this up to the Pharisees. Like never in any recorded history has a man who was born blind before been able to see. And, and they didn't even have an answer for that. The response to him was, well, you're a sinner. You don't know what you're talking about. We're kicking you out. You can't come to synagogue anymore. We're going to kill Jesus. Like, like that's their response. It's, a, it's an illogical, nonsensical response to us that people would reject even in the light of evidence. But it happens again and again throughout Scripture. And it's happened throughout all of history. We look at Romans chapter 1 and it talks about God's nature, His qualities, His characteristics have been revealed in His creation since the world began. And yet people reject the existence of God. 
We come up with whole theories of why God doesn't exist. And those theories will never be proven, and they're always theories, but yet they're taught as truth. But they don't have the evidence. They don't have the link. It's hard for us to understand and accept. But, but Jesus here, he's saying, uh, actually, that this is part of what's prophesied to happen. Uh, in John chapter 12, uh, a little bit further down in verse 35, it says, uh, Jesus answered, the light will be with you a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. He's talking about those who are, are blind that aren't recognizing that the Messiah is walking with them. They're, they're not seeing the spiritual truth of, of God's plan and purpose in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, they reject him. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you become children of the light. Jesus said this, went away and hid from them. Verse 37, even though you had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's this concept that these great and miraculous things are being revealed through creation, through miracles, through Scripture, uh, through uh, different things that happen within our life. And, and yet some, because of their blindness, don't see it for what it is and, and try to reason away or to make up excuses or to say, um, well, that was just thunder. Or this drug that's never worked before, like it's worked in a way that we never expected it to happen. Cool. Instead of saying, like, no, this is a miracle. This is a work of God. Uh, those who are blind will do whatever they can to, to continue to um, justify their blindness. Because they're not seeing the light. They, they don't grasp it. Second uh, Corinthians 4 puts it this way, that in their case, the God of this age, or Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image uh, of God. Now, there's actually a spiritual attack at work seeking to keep people blind from seeing the light of the gospel. That's why Jesus was saying in verse 36, like, like while I'm here, while it's still time, while the light is still there, believe in the light so that you become children of light. It's this cry and this prayer that we have that blindness would be lifted from people's eyes so they just get a glimpse of the existence of God and his beauty and his power, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. That he's not some the God that's sitting up there and, and waiting for us uh, to screw up and, and so that he can just squash us with punishment. But rather he's a loving father that, that wants to adopt us as his children into his family. It, it's not an existence where something went poof or bang, or whatever it was, there was nothing there, and all of a sudden, bang, and everything was there, and somehow, in a very impossible mathematical way, everything combined into a certain thing where we're sitting here this morning. And God doesn't exist, uh, and so we're just kind of like a perpetual clock that's eventually going to run out of energy uh, when we screw up this world enough where our sun blows up, and then that's it, unless miraculously, somehow, somewhere, nothing became something out of whatever. Or there's a God who exists, who spoke all things into existence, that he has designed it perfectly, 
the, the distance. We looked at this at uh, last Christmas, I believe. The distance from the, the sun that our earth is. Like, like everything's within such a perfect proportion. Uh, in fact, just this week, uh, we were looking at um, the way that God has designed things, and you can just see the, the reflections of it in, in everything that we touch and everything that we do. Um, and, and the order that God has uh, is just incredible. But yet, uh, this blindness keeps people from seeing it, from accepting it, from believing it, from submitting to it. Uh, and so we pray that that would be lifted, uh, but then we also are given a part to play. And we're going to touch on that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but in this aspect, um, we pray that this blindness be lifted. But there's an also interesting statement found in John chapter 12. Uh, in verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. So that's the first aspect of spiritual blindness. They're not seeing it. They don't get it. And so they reject it. Here's a second category within this passage, which says there's many who did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. I think this is a really interesting passage because it says many believed. This is the Greek word uh, pistuo. This is that word they had faith. They had conviction. Um, they believed in him, but yet they did not confess because of the worries, cares, and concerns and, and fear uh, of the Pharisees. This was that same thing that was threatened to the man who was born blind. And they're like, we're going to kick you out of the community if you keep talking about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And so they threatened it to this man who was born blind, who had grew up with his family, but then came to a life of destitution and having to beg for money, which is where Jesus found him. He's doing that. He comes to a place where his sight is restored. His place within community can be restored. And almost immediately, he's kicked out because he's professing Jesus as Messiah. So the religious leaders and other people are beginning to watch some of these things that Jesus are doing, and, and they're seeing the light, and they're like, yes, I think he's the Messiah. I'm not going to say anything, because this guy who was born blind, who had to beg, is kicked out of the community. What would they do to me? How would that impact my life? This is a whole different thing uh, than what we kind of experience uh, within our culture right now. Right? Like getting kicked out of the synagogue for the blind man is completely different than what it is for now. If, if we're here within this body and something happened and we had these rigid rules and uh, okay, uh, we're kicking you out. How many other churches are there in Janesville? How many other things can you just go online? Um, oh, and you can still go to Woodman's. Right? <laughs> and you can still get food. Within the community and the context of history in that time, community was everything. It wasn't just that you couldn't go to synagogue anymore, but, but rather all faithful Jews had to then treat you as an outcast. So you lose your family. You lose your friends. You can't go to the good Jewish market anymore to buy food because now you're an outcast. It impacts your entire life. And so there's people here, even among the rulers, uh, Nicodemus being one of them possibly, who have lives, who have homes, who have families that have connection and power and wealth and, and be able to go to the synagogue and, and all of that. And they're sitting there saying, 
If I dare say that I think Jesus is the Messiah, that's all gone. And so it says that they didn't confess him because they were more concerned about the praise or the acceptance of their peers than the praise and the acceptance of God for confessing Christ, for being able to, to pursue him. Now, the thing with this, though, is we also have to look at that connection and in that situation, and, and what comes to mind sometimes is Romans chapter 10, right? If you believe in your, how, your heart and you confess with your mouth, that then you're saved. Or the other passage that says, like, like if you deny me in front of other people, then, then I deny you, right? And, and so we need to keep those verses in consideration, but also that of another story. Where Peter, one of the apostles, did the very same thing. Jesus told him, you're going to betray me three times before a rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's like, no, I'd rather die than, than ever deny you. And yet, he follows Jesus after he's arrested. He, he's going and he's standing out within the courtyard um, while Jesus is being tried by these Pharisees, by these religious rulers. And people are coming up to him like, hey, I've seen you with Jesus. That's not me. A servant girl, like, no, I know that you are with Jesus. I tell you, I don't even know the man. And so Peter here is not confessing Jesus out of concern for what other people think or what's actually going to happen to his life. What ends up with Peter? Is he rejected? Is he cast out by God because you didn't confess me? No. It, it was Peter went out, wept bitterly, in repentance. And then there's this amazing interaction where Jesus and Peter see each other for the first time after the resurrection. And, and Jesus is on the shore, and G uh, Peter's in a boat. Peter jumps out of the boat, runs up to Jesus, and, and Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Lord, I know you love me. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Three times. The same number of times that Peter had rejected Jesus, the same number of times Jesus saying, do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's this beautiful restoration that takes place through grace and through mercy. Uh, and so we have to keep those in context when we're talking about people who don't necessarily uh, confess Christ in situations because it happens for a number of different reasons. And these different reasons we actually have to examine within our life. And as we examine these, it's not for the sake of condemnation. Because remember Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Restoration. And, and then what happened with Peter going forward? It was a pillar of the church. He's the one that preached at Pentecost 33 CE and as the Holy Spirit fell. And 3,000 people came into the church. He was used mightily and powerfully by God. It was just a, a learning moment for him. And, and in fact, later on, Peter had to go and face the Pharisees a second time, the very ones that condemned Jesus to death. And he's standing before them and boldly says, I will not stop speaking about Jesus. His whole life changed. He was able to learn from this. And so as we go into some of these different reasons, again, it's not for the sake of condemnation or, or shame, but for rather self-examination if we have any of these things in our life, uh, and then to trust the grace of God that restores us, that we can learn from this uh, and move forward. Uh, so some of the different reasons for not confessing Christ uh, with our mouths, even though we believe in him, uh, is because of fear. Uh, because of the religious leaders, um, 
Maybe it's fear of coworkers, fear of persecution, uh, fear of what people will say to us or treat us if they know that we go to church, if we know or they know that, that we're Christians. Uh, perhaps uh, for some it's a fear of death. Uh, it was the case uh, for Peter in that moment in the courtyard. And it's not necessarily the case for us here in Janesville this morning, um, but it is a temptation for brothers and sisters throughout the world that are living in persecuted countries where to, to confess Jesus literally means death. Um, being cut off from the community. Uh, some, another reason besides fear, uh, will neglect confessing Jesus because of a lack of appreciation uh, for what God has done. As, as God has done so much for us. Our, our sins have been forgiven. Our, our slates have been wiped clean as we confess Him as Lord and Savior and repent uh, of our sins. And not only that, He then adopts us into His kingdom as sons and daughters. Not only that, He chooses to indwell us within His Spirit. Not only that, He bestows gifts upon us to be able to, to continue His work within the world. Not only that, we're going to live with eternity, in eternity with Him forever. Like there's so much that He's done for us that if we have a lack of appreciation for this, we don't necessarily live it out. We don't acknowledge it. We don't share it. We don't say why, whatever. It's as though somebody has given us a great gift and yet we pretend that it wasn't a gift at all. Oh, what a nice watch that is. Yeah, thank you. Instead of saying, well, this watch was, you know, my great uncle's, and then went to my grandfather, then went to my dad, and then he gave it to me, and, and it was just this really cool gift, and it's something I'm able to appreciate. Or saying, like, yep, it is, and trying to claim, like, the status of the watch for ourselves. Like, oh, yeah, I made enough money to buy this. It's like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that gift. Or you think of um, kids who are being dropped off by their parents and like how much parents do for children and yet you go to a public place and you drop them off and you're like, all right, honey, love you. See you later. Let me give you a kiss. And then like the kids are like pretending like, I don't know who that person is. <laughs> right? Like that's just too embarrassing. Like cut it out, mom and dad. Um, it's that same thing, like that lack of um, appreciating what God has given, and then that worry about other people, and because we don't truly uh, appreciate it in that moment. I remember doing that to my own parents. Like, I used to work um, in a hospital, um, actually in the kitchen uh, with my dad, and, and this was before I had a true appreciation of all that he did and all the hard work that he, you know, was doing at the hospital and everything like that. Um, but I remember, like, seeing him there, and I'm having friends that also work there, and, like, I didn't want them to know that, like, he was my dad. And, and so I just kind of, like, walk by. I wouldn't really have any other interaction besides typical coworker interaction. And, and it wasn't respecting to him, but it also wasn't appreciating what he did, but it's a, it's a slight picture of what we can do with Christ. Like, he's done so much for us that if we don't truly value it, it's really easy just to kind of let it be in the background instead of something that, that guides us and leads us uh, in all that we do. Another aspect uh, for not confessing Christ uh, is that we may not take faith seriously. And what do I mean by that? Not taking our faith seriously. 
is a temptation to be able to, to kind of go through, and, and it's certainly happened within our culture and within America. We're like, yeah, I'm Christian. I, I was raised Christian. My grandmother went to church. Um, I celebrate Christmas. That's a Christian thing to do. Uh, I, you know, check off the box and go to church on Easter and Christmas and some Sundays. Uh, like, like, that's not like a serious faith. That's not a faith that, that examines it and, and makes it our whole life. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who has doubts, right? Because if you have doubts, we should wrestle through those doubts. We, we go to Scripture. We examine it. We ask God to, to reveal things to us. We, we should uh, work through those doubts and should wrestle with them. And if anybody uh, discovers that their beliefs are wrong, they're, they're, they're not in Scripture. I've been misled. We, we discover our beliefs are wrong uh, really about anything. We should really leave those beliefs right? Like, like if my belief, like this light is magic, you know, it's kind of cool. You put a switch on a wall and magically like light appears over my head uh, and somebody comes and corrects me and says, well, it, it's not magic. There's actually like copper that's running through the wall and up to those lights and there's electricity running through those. And as electricity runs through those, it goes through a really, really, really small thin wire. And because the wire is so small and so thin, uh, it starts to glow, which gives off light. Okay, now I understand I should drop the whole this is magic uh, kind of thing. And, and so if we're convicted, our beliefs are wrong, we should leave what those things are. But if we truly believe something, we should live fully according to that. We truly believe gravity exists. Or, or does anybody want to, to go up there and walk across the light strand? Anybody? Volunteers? No. Like, it's ridiculous to us. Like, like, we say there's something mentally wrong with somebody who's like, believes they can fly and jumps off a building or wants to jump off a building. It's because we're so convinced and believe that gravity is real that we question the sanity of those that don't or we would question our own sanity if we believed or acted in a way that gravity didn't exist. If we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that salvation comes through Him being our Lord and submitting our lives to Him, it is foolishness not to live as though it wasn't true. If we believe, if you believe God in Jesus died for your sins, that they're forgiven, that He has given you a new life, that He has rescued you from sin and darkness, that He's broken the chains of sin and addiction, and, and yet you continue to move on and live in a way that that's not true, you're not taking your faith seriously. You're not making it a whole part of your life because the truth is, Scripture tells us, that is our whole life. That is our new life with Jesus Christ being our Lord and Savior. To believe in the existence of a loving, gracious God who has a plan and a design. Jesus continues here in chapter 12 in John, in verse 44. Uh, in response to those, he's saying like, okay, um, Isaiah said this, you're not going to believe. Jesus cries out in verse 44. The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. 
I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so here Jesus is saying, like, I'm here to point to the Father. I'm here to reveal the existence of God. If, if we grasp Jesus Christ uh, and his love and his grace and his mercy as he's walked this world, we've grasped the nature of God himself. Because he is God. So he's pointing that out. He's also saying, I'm coming so that you're able to see that you don't remain in darkness or sin or death. Uh, but I, verse 47 is, is really interesting. Because it says, anyone who hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Like if we just stop there, we find that this is a sentiment that, that a lot of people have in the world around us. First of all, they're like, we shouldn't judge one another. Only God can judge me. And what they really mean by that is, I'm going to feel justified regardless of what I do because God's going to understand my heart. Like God's gracious. God is love. God is mercy. He's going to understand my heart. He's going to know how difficult it is for me with this sin or with this. I've been in conversations with people where, where um, they, they're cheating on their spouse. And, and I'm saying, like, you realize this is something God says you shouldn't do. Yep, you know, I realize this. Okay, well, are you, are you then going to stop doing it because you know God says you shouldn't? I can't. Well, you, you mean that you don't feel like God is strong enough to, to help you do something he's told you not to do? Well, 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 I can't, and I think he really understands that, that I can't, and so therefore he's, he's okay with it. It's a sentiment that people have within the world, and, and oftentimes when they say only God can judge, that's what they're really saying, is that I've got things in my life that I know that I'm doing wrong, but, but I think that God's going to have this compassion on it because he understands how hard it is for me personally to, to stay away from this. This verse here says this. If anyone hears my words, doesn't keep them, this is Jesus saying, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. However, in verse 48, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a command to say everything that I have said. In other words, there is a truth that has been established throughout all of existence by God, woven into all of creation so that none are without excuse. It's revealed to us in Scripture how God says we should follow him. And what Jesus is saying, the judge will be, is this. That, it, that it's not this sentiment of, well, it's just really, really hard for me not to sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. And, and it's just so hard that, that God's going to understand, like, I'm trying the best that I can. Now, there is grace, and there is mercy, and there is forgiveness, but it comes with repentance. Repentance. And repentance is a changing of mind. 
Repentance is acknowledging this is what is true, this is what is right, this is what I must submit to, this is what I must conform to. And as we change our mind and walk according to the Word, to the declarations of Christ, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy, there's restoration. He continues to use us and love us. But we can't sit there and say, oh, it's all subjective. He's understanding. It's all subjective. Because Jesus himself is saying, this word that I've spoken, this is truth. This is reality. This is the standard. And in this standard, we also find there's grace, mercy, forgiveness through repentance, restoration, love. We see the parable of the prodigal son who rejected his father, tried to take everything and go and live however he felt like living. He comes back and the father brings him back to full restoration saying, here's a robe, here's a ring, let's kill the fatted calf, let's have a party. My son who is dead is now alive again and returned. This is all within the standard. This is all within how we're going to be judged. And so on that day when we meet Jesus, uh, it's all established by his work on the cross. It's all established through grace, through mercy. But he calls us in this new life to live according to his principles. To live according to what he has told us to do. What is sin, what is not sin. And if we are convinced that Jesus is the Savior, if we are convinced that our sins are forgiven, then it would be foolish for us to live as though this all wasn't true. To be subjected to it. Subjective about it. We should be subjected to it. If we claim Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, we're saying we submit to this. We live our lives fully according to this because we're convinced that they're true. Which then I think leads us um, to another but more subtle form of not confessing Christ. Up till now, we've been talking about kind of doing it verbally. Like we, we don't say it to our coworkers because we're afraid of, of persecution. We don't say it in other countries because we might be killed. It's, it's all about like this verbal declaration of I believe in Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. Uh, which is what the word confessing means. And uh, while it's often seen as verbal, it can also be revealed by our actions and, and the fruit in our lives. In other words, uh, we might say with our mouths, I believe in Jesus. We might say with our mouths that, that I am forgiven from our sins, but our actions of our lives may show that we do not fully submit to Christ as Lord with Scripture as our guide. And, and it might be for very similar reasons uh, that were listed previously. Loving the praise of people more than the praise of God. This would be the times that peer pressure would lead us in, into actions that we know that Jesus is not calling us to walk in. This would be the, the pressure of a boyfriend or a girlfriend to, to, to commit sin against God, even though I believe. This would be the pressure um, within friends to get drunk, to abuse substances, to treat people um, poorly, to um, create injustice against others through peer pressure, uh, even though 
we confess that Jesus is our Lord. Perhaps uh, with our actions, we're not confessing him because uh, we blend our faith with the wisdom of the world. And what I mean by this is uh, we want to follow Jesus, we love Jesus, we want to go to church, uh, but we don't want to be seen as one of those really crazy Jesus people. You know, the, the ones that are really radical, like I, I, I'm good within my lines, within my boundaries of going to church on Sunday, um, but we hold on to our earthly securities. We, we treat our jobs as though well, this is my provision. I have to earn this. I have to make sure that I'm provided for, that my family's provided for, that all these things. And all of that is a denial of Matthew chapter 6 where it says, seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. That God himself is our provider and we're simply stewards of what he's given to us. Yet, if we live by the mindset that it's all on my shoulders, it's all about my actions, what I'm able to do and how I'm able to provide... We're living in a way that we're not showing trust in God as our provider. And we're not confessing with our actions that we truly trust in Him. Maybe it's about um, where we live, right? Like, like I remember, you know, there's one thing that um, as we would move to a new city, in fact, I did the same thing when we moved to Janesville. It's like, okay, we're, we're going to be moving to Janesville. Uh, where do we not want to live? Where is the unsafe place? Because I don't want to go there. And, and so I remember doing the research and sitting there and saying, okay, like there's a certain section of the city. I've, I've got a four-year-old daughter, and so therefore, like, I've got to be thinking about this. And, and so therefore, we, you know, when we initially came here, it's like, okay, well, this is X'd out, right? And as I'm saying that, like, even there's this... this altering thing that's just kind of like, well, you know, we need to have wisdom. We need to have discernment. We need to, to kind of make those choices, which is true, right? God has given us wisdom. He's given us reason. He's given us a understanding and, and a, even a desire for safety, not to do unreasonable things. But if we allow that to overrule what God is clearly calling us to, then we're showing by our actions that we don't truly confess to him as Lord. I think of, of many different um, stories uh, of missionaries who, who chose to go into places that were dangerous through the gates of splendor or, or end of the spear, right? Is this whole story about these missionaries in South America uh, that are going to uh, this tribe that was known to be the, basically the murder tribe, like, like all the other tribes would like stay out of the territory of this one tribe because you go in there, you die. And yet they did one thing after another thing after another thing to try and reach this people group to the point where they eventually went down onto the ground to, to be able to connect with them. And they died. They were killed by this tribe. If you know the story, you know what happens next. The wives of the men continued to reach out to that tribe and to give gifts and to show grace and to show mercy. And this tribe was reached with Christ. And, and in this tribe and its transformation spoke to everybody else who saw this. There is uh, another book, I forget the missionary's name, uh, but the book is entitled Chasing the Dragon. Um, and it's this single woman who was living in England. And oh, I wish I remembered her name. 
um, single woman living in England, felt called to go to China. And, and so she went to her church. All right, I feel like the Lord's calling me to go to China. It's not safe for you. Okay. So, so then she goes to a, a missions agency. I feel like the Lord's calling me to go to China. It's not safe for you. And if she would just listen to that and have one foot in, in earthly wisdom, and even the, the advice offered by pastors, by missions agencies, if she would have listened to that, she would have been like, okay, I guess I shouldn't go. I should stay. Instead, she saved up whatever money she had, bought a ticket on a train, and rode the train to China as a single woman. She gets off the train, and the police stop her. What are you doing here? I, I came here because God wanted me to come here. Well, what money do you have? I, I don't have any money. Uh, and so they connect her with a, a church in the area, and, and somehow she convinces that they were going to put her back on the train because it's not safe for her to do this. She ends up staying... And she goes to Kowloon City. Does everybody know what Kowloon City is? It was a part of Hong Kong that the police wouldn't even go into. It was a, a section of, of buildings that had been mostly abandoned. And this is where the drug dealers lived. This is where the gangs lived. This is where prostitution was. All of that was in this city because the police didn't dare to go into the city unless it was mass in force. She ends up living in that city. And this whole book uh, is this thing where uh, as she's there, as she's loving on people, as she's uh, nursing them out of um, addiction to drugs, uh, she's then known, even by the triads, the gang leaders in the area, that, that if they had somebody within their gang that was so hooked up on opium that they weren't useful anymore, they could send them to her. Although they started to realize that if they send them to her, they get saved and they don't want to be in the gang anymore. It's this really amazing book. But, it, but it's this aspect of that, that confessing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior means I'm submitting my whole life to him. And there might be times where he calls me into action to do things that I'm not comfortable with or that the world or other Christians may say, that's not safe, that's not smart, that's not wise. And if we have our foot in the world and our foot following Jesus, we confess him as Lord and Savior, and we follow him in some things, but not all things, we're going to find ourselves torn apart at times. And we may miss out on some of these opportunities that, that are truly incredible because we're, we're afraid. Maybe it's not a missionary. Maybe it's the job that you have. Maybe you don't want to disappoint family's expectations. We raised you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Oh, God's calling me to be a botanist. I, we, we follow where our Heavenly Father leads us. But if we're worried or carried or uh, concerned about how others look at us, what others' expectations are, we may hesitate or not fully walk, not fully confess that Jesus is our Lord. Another huge thing is the appropriate life stage goals. Like, we don't mention it a lot, but 
we have it, right? Like, like when we're 20, we should be at a certain point, graduated from high school and maybe in college. You know, by 22, 24, we're graduated from college unless we're like going for a doctorate or a lawyer. In that case, that goes on farther. You know, when we hit our 30s, like hopefully we own a house by then, you know, maybe, maybe we're married or, or going to be married soon. Like that's about when kids should start coming, right? And then when we hit our 40s, like this is when we should be really hitting our stride, like everything's going well. We're, we're over halfway to retirement, and so let's get the money in the bank so that we're able to be set up in 20 years from now when we retire. You know, get into 50s, that's a decent time to maybe be a grandparent. And then start putting all that pressure on our kids, like, okay, life stage, you should be having children right now. Like, like, we have those. Our society has all these different life stage things. We can throw all of those out of the window when we're following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What are you calling me to do with my life? Are you calling me to be a missionary? Then I'm going to be a missionary. Are you calling me to have this particular career? Then I'm going to walk in that. Are you calling us not to have children? Then, Lord, we give our life to you in that the best that we can. That's what it is. We can throw out all of these life stage goal expectations. What is God calling us to be faithful in? Let's walk in those. And if we do that, fully submitted to Christ as Lord, we find that we are going to be then the light. The light that points to Jesus. Jesus was saying, like, walk in the light while the light is here so that you're not stuck in the darkness. He leaves and then says, we're the light to the world, to, to be able to reveal him so that others that are blind might see and come to the same uh, freeing release from the chains of this world. Romans 10, we touched on it before, it says this in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So here's this whole concept of, of confessing with him, right? We go down to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, this aspect of the gospel of salvation, of repentance, calling upon Jesus, believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth. Verse 14 then. How then can they call on him that they've not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Now I want to stop there. Because in English, we look at the word preacher and you think of me. In the Greek, this word literally means a herald. It literally means someone who is there to share the information of the kingdom. It's the town crier. This would be the village, right? And, and here's the village, and the, the herald comes in with a message from the king saying, Hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming on this date and this time. And they post it on the wall. It's not saying preacher, paid pastor, the guy that stands up in front with the microphone. It's saying those who proclaim Christ. That's you and that's me. Both with our words and our actions. So don't read this passage and take away from this, well, how are people going to believe unless I get them in church so that they can hear from a preacher? 
What this passage is saying is how then will they call on him if they've not believed and how will they believe without hearing about him? That's the key of this passage. And how will they hear without someone declaring it to them? And how can they declare it unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is how the light spreads. By confessing Jesus. It's really all it is. You don't have to have a theological degree. I don't, personally. We know Jesus. We know the Word. We know what He's done in our lives. We know the conviction. We've been witnesses to miracles and God's work in our lives and the lives around us. We declare Him and what He's done. We're told people are still going to reject it. And some people are going to receive it. We pray, we pray for those who reject it that their eyes would be open, but we continue to declare it by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord with our mouths and not just going around and saying, did you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? Did you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? Like I'm confessing it, right? Do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? We, we confess it with, with all of the Word. We confess it with the reality of the existence of Jesus Christ as being Lord and all that that means in our testimony. Just praying for somebody else. All those things are confessing it with our mouth, but we also confess it with our actions. Because if other people hear us say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and then we act like anybody else from the world, what does that show? What effect does it truly have? But if we're radically different, if we stand out as aliens and strangers, as First Peter tells us to stand out, then we show by our words and by our actions that Jesus Christ is our Lord, not the principles, not the wisdom, not the right life stage of this world, but Jesus Doing so, we are the light. Doing so, all those around us are hearing the message of the gospel of the transformation through Jesus' love on the cross. Some are going to respond. Some are not. But all we're called to do is to proclaim the good news. It says, how will they preach or how will they declare? How are they a herald unless they're sent? You just have to look to Matthew 28 for that. Go therefore. Preach the good news. You are sent. You're his ambassador. You're his son. You're his daughter. You are the light in the world through the grace of Jesus Christ. And your choices, your actions as you follow him have impact for all of eternity on everybody that you do it in front of. Whether they respond or not, it impacts them for eternity. Father, we come before you. I thank you for this passage. I thank you um, to be able to see that there are different ways that we may believe in you, we may confess that you're our Lord and Savior, uh, but there's even different ways that our actions do not fully walk that out. Uh, Lord, we want to be those that if we are fully convinced that you love us, that you died for us, that you um, lived for us, we want to live according to that truth in all that we do. We want to be the light in this world. Uh, Lord, I pray that we have the beautiful feet that declare the Britain and good news. 
Lord, reveal to us in our lives the things that we have to set aside or change, but to do so not with condemnation, not with shame, but with the confidence that you restored Peter in love. And this is just a learning experience for us to fully submit to you as our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.